Well, good morning. Uh, it's our Palm Sunday service, and so um, we're going to read Luke's account of Jesus's entrance into uh, Jerusalem, and uh, we'll be reading verses, uh, chapter 19, verses 28 through 48. And when Jesus had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the coat, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the coat? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the coat, they sat Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Jesus answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when they drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they could not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for the song that we just heard, and what a reminder that as Paul reminded us in 1 Corinthians that the things that happened in the wilderness to our fathers were an example for us. And Lord, sometimes the example is negative with our grumbling and complaining. And Lord, sometimes the example is for our good. That as they stare the sea in front of them and bondage behind them, that they were afraid. The sea was a sign of chaos and death and uncertainty and yet you walked with them you made a way out of no way you walked them through to the other side and lord we stare at what's happening in our world with the loss of jubilee and those in nashville and those here in our own state with tornadoes and brothers and sisters in arkansas and life feels a lot like that. We're staring sadness and gloom and uncertainty right in the face. And 
We wonder how we'll make it through. And yet the good news is that you will make a way. You always have and you always will until you lead us home. And so comfort us, Lord, with your steadied and faithful presence and mend our hearts even now through your word. Build your people up. Anchor us in yourself and your unshakable kingdom. Do this, Lord, that we would bow before our king and worship. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So today begins, uh, begins Holy Week, and this is the week that Christians across the ages have termed to capture the final week of Jesus' earthly life and ministry before his resurrection. And it's important to note that in case you're new to the Bible, uh, we have four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and they're all telling the same story about the person and work of Jesus, but they're telling us from different angles and different vantage points. And I want to submit to you that, that, that the four different gospel accounts should be read and heard as a symphony where, where each gospel writer is telling us something new and different and beautiful. And when you step back and see the whole picture of Jesus, this Jesus is lovely and amazing. But what's important to note that there, there are differences so in John's gospel account, the, 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 the Palm Sunday is inaugurated with the healing of Lazarus, that one of the reasons that so many followers are exclaiming Jesus to be Messiah is because they just saw Lazarus, who was dead, raised. But, but Luke doesn't capture that. He captures something else. But, but here's what, what they all agree on. They all agree that Holy Week is important, so important that Luke devotes 25% of his whole gospel to this one week. That Mark and Matthew devote 33% of their entire gospels to this one week. And John devotes 50% of his whole gospel to this one week. And so what they're doing is they're all zooming in and slowing their gospel down so that we will lean into Holy Week. And so Holy Week begins with Palm Sunday. It's, it's what we just read, Jesus riding into Jerusalem. And then you get to Monday, Thursday. That's the night that Jesus washed the disciples' feet, the night that he celebrated the Passover supper with them, the night that he was betrayed by Judas and handed over to the religious leaders. And then you get Good Friday, which is not a good day for Jesus. He had a false trial. He was betrayed by his own. He was hung on a cross. And from 3 p.m. to 6 p.m., darkness came across the land. And then he breathed his last as God was making him sin for us. And then you get the holy season of waiting from Friday night, all day Saturday, and parts of Sunday. The one who said that he is a resurrection and the life is dead. Is what he said true? Will he be raised? And those disciples had to live in that tension. And we live in that tension. Is this kingdom real? Is he returning? 
And then on Easter Sunday, their waiting gave way to wonder. He was true. He was raised. And there was no promise made that went unfulfilled. And that was the week that changed the world. But Palm Sunday is the first domino in a series of dominoes of Holy Week. And that's where we are this morning. What's up with Palm Sunday? Like, like why is this important? Our world today feels less stable. Our grieving today is real. And perhaps the tears won't stop coming. And it's important on Palm Sunday to remember that you need a king. We need a king. And that is what Palm Sunday reminds us of. And so I want to ask a few questions of the text. What does Palm Sunday teach us? And here's the first point. Palm Sunday reminds us that we all need a king. Palm Sunday today reminds us that we all need a king. Now, I've just told you that the gospel writers all capture different things. So, for example, if you read Luke's account, he doesn't tell us that they raise palm branches. But if you go read other accounts, they tell us that they raise branches. And then John tells us they raise palm branches. And so there is disagreement or they're choosing to not include certain things. But here is the, the, the one thing. Well, there's several things. But one thing that they all agree on is what the crowds called Jesus. If you go to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they're all calling Jesus. And you see it in verse 38. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest, right? They're all calling Jesus king. And we have to step back and say, what's that about? Of all things that they're calling Jesus, like, like, like why are they calling him king? And this is where we need to put on our biblical theological hats. We need to see if there is something underneath it that compels them to call him that. So here's a chart. And the, the artist in me, like if you should see how I prepare, like you, you would probably laugh. I scribble and draw and color code. But, but, but here's the thing, king, right? That, that's the big blue circle. And what I've done on the left is to try to pull out other passages in the Old Testament where this idea of kingship is used. Now, the, the, the red bubbles, they're irrelevant. King is used in a generic sense. But the green bubbles, the dark green bubbles, that they have those lines. So like Deuteronomy 17, 1 Samuel 7, 1 Samuel 8, Psalm 24, Daniel 2, Zechariah 9, Psalm 2, Psalm 118. That's at the backdrop of all of these Jews. Their hopes and dreams hang off of all of those big passages in the past, and you'll see a continuation into the New Testament, so much so that the book of Revelation ends with Jesus being called, among anything, king of kings and king of all lords, right? So this idea of kingship is important to understanding the entire Bible. Thank you, Greg. So what's going on in 1 Samuel? First Samuel, the people of Israel asked Samuel the prophet for a king. Give us a king who will judge us like the nations. And, and Samuel is grieved to his heart. And then the, the Lord comes to Samuel and says, don't be grieved. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. Give them a king. Only warn them of what's going to happen. 
Now, hearing that, you might be tempted to think that God is anti-king, but you, we can't do that. First, because God says they're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me. In other words, they already have a king, and they don't know by choosing an earthly king, they're rejecting their true king. But give it to them. But then if you go back to Deuteronomy, which was written before 1 Samuel, God himself actually says in Deuteronomy 17, and when you go in the land and when you desire a king, this is the characteristic. These are the traits of the king. And so connect the dots. God is for them having a king, but not just any king, the right king, his king, and they want a king. And that's what's happening in the passage. They're crowning Jesus. They're waving their branches. They're taking off their cloaks and they're throwing them on the ground. They're putting them on the donkey. They're mounting Jesus and picking him up and putting him on it. They are rolling out the red carpet for this king. And they say, blessed is this king who comes in the name of the Lord. They're, 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 they're asking and pleading for his reign to be blessed by God, to, to, to reign over us as God himself would. They're, they're asking for peace in heaven and glory. They're asking for cosmic peace. They're actually quoting Psalm 18, which is a hallelujah psalm. And, and some gospels say that they're saying more than crown him. They're also saying Hosanna, which means save me. Save us from our enemies. Save us from our death. Save us from all things that threaten us. And in Psalm 18, the cry is for salvation, for security, and for success. And if they are asking for it, it must mean they lack some of it. You don't cry out for something you already have. So about 20 years ago, one of my prayers was for a wife. And I have not prayed that prayer since May 15, 2004. I pray for my wife, but I have not asked the Lord for a wife since my wife became my wife. I'm not praying that anymore because I have her. When we bought our first house, we watched HGTV, right? Fixer Uppers. We watched it and we were, I mean, we were glued to it and we were praying for the right house. And I have not prayed for a house since I bought a house. You don't pray for what you already have. And what they're praying for and pleading for is a window into the reality that they lack what they asked for. They don't have perfect safety. They don't have absolute salvation. They don't have absolute satisfaction. And so they're crying out. And can't we relate? We live with a measure of stability but we pray when tornadoes come because we know at any moment our stability is gone. We live with a measure of prosperity. We have food in the refrigerator, but we also know we're one stock market crash, one layoff, one 
housing market crash. And so Jesus teaches us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. And embedded in that prayer is an uncertainty. You don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. And we pray, lead us not into temptation. Because we know we're not glorified right now. And we know that temptation can move us to fall. And so even us, as we cry out in our prayers, what we are actually admitting is that the fullness of what's to come is not here right now. And we pray for safety because we know that any moment someone with wicked intentions can snatch our lives away like that. And so we pray for safety. Do you hear what's in your prayer, saints? You're praying for what you don't have absolutely and perfectly. And your prayers, they're reminding you, you need a king who's going to give you safety, who's going to protect and provide and stabilize and keep and fight and save. It's not just them crying out for a king. This is our prayer. And Palm Sunday reminds us we need a king. Palm Sunday also exposes our tendency to enthrone counterfeit kings. That's the second point. Palm Sunday also exposes our tendency to enthrone counterfeit kings. There's a dark side to this story. If you keep reading Luke or keep reading Matthew or Mark or John, then what you're going to see is a turn. And and the way that Luke is set up It's the disciples. The disciples are the ones who go get the coat. The disciples are the ones who take off their cloak and put it over the donkey. The disciples are the ones who lift Jesus up and put him on the animal. And the disciples are the ones who take off their cloaks and lay them on the ground. And then the crowd begins to follow what the disciples are doing. Now, here's the turn. If you keep reading Luke, the disciples are going to abandon Jesus. The disciples are going to betray Jesus. And then the crowd will follow suit. And you wonder why. Why? I think it has to do with these two things you see in the paragraphs after the first one. It's what Jesus does when he rides in. And the first place Jesus goes when he rides in. Did you notice? It's, it's, it's anticlimactic. When Je- in verse 41, when Jesus drew near and saw the city, he wept. What? Talk about a letdown. They're crowning him and he rides in and stops and starts to cry. He starts to weep over their blindness. He starts to weep over. They're saying peace and peace and peace. And he says, you don't know what this peace is going to cost. And you don't know the peace that you really need. And it makes me sad because you're going to have to suffer. And I'm going to have to suffer for you to see the cost of the peace. 
And then where does Jesus go? He does not go to Herod's temple. I mean, Herod's home. He does not storm Pilate's gates. He actually goes to their temple and cleanses their temple as if to say the problem isn't Herod or Pilate. You're the problem. And I'm going to build a new temple. It's going to be me. And you're going to meet God through me. And so now you understand the disappointment. He's a weeping Messiah and a suffering Messiah, not one who's going to go overthrow the government. And he locates the problem inside the people of God and not primarily outside with outside forces. And when they get wind of that, they don't want this king. And so it's what happens when you turn to John where Pilate has Jesus and he sends Jesus to Herod and Herod sends him back to Pilate and Pilate wants to free him. And the crowd says, you are a friend of the enemy. If you free him, don't free him, free Barabbas. And then Pilate beats him and then says, look, I find nothing wrong with him. And listen to what Pilate says. This this is out of the words of Pilate. Shall I crucify your king? The king you just crowned a few days ago? Is this the king you want me to kill? And you know what the people said? We have no king but Caesar. And Luke says, Pilate delivered Jesus over to die according to the will of the people. You catch that? And this isn't the first time God's people have done that. In 1 Samuel 7, God tells them, tell them, Samuel, tell them what kind of king they're going to get. And here's a characteristic of the king they wanted. They will take your king, will take your sons and daughters, and he will appoint them to his chariots. He will make them plow his ground to reap his harvest and to make his weapons of war. He will take your daughters. He will take the best of your fields. He will take your vineyards and your orchards and your grain. He will take your servants. He will take the best of your young men. He will take your animals. He will take a tenth of your flock. You shall be his slaves. The word that's repeated over and over and over again is the king that you're going after will take and take and take and take and take. And they're rejecting the king that they should have desired. One scholar says Jesus was rejected because he was not the sort of king people wanted in their day. They had become used to the ordinary, the shabby, the second rate sort. They were looking for a builder to construct the home they wanted. But he was an architect coming in with a brand new plan. They were looking for a singer to sing the song that they had had been humming the whole time. But he was a composer bringing them a new song. We are like them. We want a religious leader, not a king. We want someone to save our souls and not rule our worlds. Or if we want a king, we want him to implement the policies we already embrace, just as Jesus's contemporaries did. Holy Week is a window into the way humanity practices fickleness. 
we laud him and crown him king today. And a few days later, we yell, crucify him. And this is a window into their hearts, and it's also a warning into ours. I'm going to give you some homework this week. I'm going to give you two songs, three songs to go listen to. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Mahalia Jackson sings that song like no other. And I wish I could sing because I'll sing it for you. But I'm not. Anthony Leon sings that song like no other. And there's a line in the song. Sometimes it causes me to tremble. Me to tremble. Shailen, he rewrote it and did his own rendition of it. And he says, were you there? And here's what he writes. His arrest is not just, neither is the trial While Jesus is being treated foul, he sees Peter's denial. He sent to Pilate, to Herod, and back to Pilate, the violence of humanity at its finest. And so now he stands before the crowd, doomed to die. An angry mob is yelling out, crucify. The way they treat the Lord of glory is debased and it's foul. Ashamed, I bow because I see my face in the crowd. That's the turn of phrase. Our tendency is to think they have a problem. That's them. And what the hymn is saying is our faces are in the crowd, that we are the ones that choose counterfeit kings, and we are the ones that reject the true king. On our best day, we don't believe he's on the throne. And on our worst day, we enthrone others. We actually begin to think that an earthly king or ruler or other humans or earthly possessions or people will satisfy our deepest longings. We're like them, which moves us to our third point. What is God going to do? God, on Palm Sunday, spotlights and authenticates the true king. Palm Sunday is about God spotlighting and authenticating this is the true king. In a world of counterfeits, in a world with the illusion of power, let me spotlight and authenticate the real king. All right, y'all. How many of you know what two-factor authentication is. Raise your hand. All right. That's good. I hate it. (laughs) Like I loathe it. If I could go back to the old way of just putting my fingerprint in my phone to open my bank account and it looks at my face, I would do it. And now because there are counterfeits out there, people imitating to be me who want my password. Now we got this two factor authentication. Now I have to log in. And once I log in, you go send me a text message on a device that I don't have in front of me. So now I got to get up and go find my phone in another room and put a code that you just sent me in my phone on my iPad to just log into my account. 
Why? Because it's fakers out there. It's security measure. It's to say, no, we got to make sure you are who you really are. And so you're going to have to do more than just put your password in now. Or what about the, the Bucky's signage? How many of y'all been to Bucky's? All right. I don't get the hype. I think if we went once outside of St. Louis. I just know their signs are annoying and catching, right? You can be riding in Texas, and they actually have a Bucky sign that says, Bucky's, 737 miles. You can hold it, right? 737 miles. Why are you giving me a sign to let me know in almost 800 miles that your gas station is there, right? And they get, they, they, they get more frequent. Bucky's, it's potty time, nine miles. Bucky's, it's jerky. It's one of the five food groups, 61 miles. Eat here, get gas here. Bucky's, 59 miles. You better risk it for our brisket. Bucky's in two miles, right? And you're riding down the interstate, and all you keep seeing is these Bucky sign, Bucky sign. Now, here's the thing. When you finally get to Bucky's, you know you're at Bucky's. And they have just allured you in. They have just did clever marketing, putting signs up, pointing. Here's the thing. God himself is spotlighting Jesus. And God himself, with a holy annoyance in the Old Testament, (laughs) a holy annoyance, if you just read it, you should walk away. Okay, God, I get it. All right, I get it, right? He is doing authentication of the real king. And that's how we have to read this passage. So if you read Deuteronomy 17, which is underneath their cry for a king, listen to what God says. When you want a king like the nations, you may have a king, but this is how you should recognize him. He must be selected by me. He must not be a foreigner. He must be one of your brothers. He must not have many chariots. He must not trust in his gold. He must not build weapons. He must not have many wives. He must not acquire much gold. He must write for himself a copy of the law. He must be steeped in the scriptures. He must fear me. He must be humble. He must not have a heart that is lifted up above his brothers. Listen to what another authentication of Jesus says. And David, when you die, I will raise up an offspring after you who shall come from your body and he will rule forever. Listen to Psalm 2. As for me, I have selected my king. Listen to Psalm 148. Let all the creation praise him, sun and moon and waters beneath and mountains and hills and trees, kings of the earth and all peoples. And then Zechariah 9, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a coat, on the foal of a donkey. Or 2 Chronicles, the last verse in the Jewish Old Testament would have ended with these words. 
let him go up. What king will go up and deliver us? And did you notice how what Luke says in verse 28? And when he had said these things, he went on ahead. He went up. He went up to Jerusalem. In other words, God is actually saying, I'm the king. You got the right one, baby, says God. And here's the million dollar question. What king boasted not in his war horses or armored cars or secret service, but who chose to ride into the battle of eternity on a donkey? What king told his disciples, lay your weapons down? My kingdom does not come with your might and your weapons of war. What king has creation praising him? Did you catch that in the text? Look, look at it. It happens twice. Look at, verse, look at verse 39 and 40. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Make them be quiet. And look at, look at verse 40. And Jesus answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Y'all got stones crying out when, 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 you know, like, come on, man. Did you catch the beast of burden? No one has ever ridden it. Look, I'm not a cowboy. And I didn't grow up on a farm. I know a thing or two about stubborn animals. I own one. And he's a giant schnauzer. And he's about like this tall. And I went on a walk with him this week. This is a dog that's been eating my food for seven years. A dog that we take care of. And I'm telling you, when my dog that's seven years old wants to be stubborn, he is stubborn. A 20-minute walk can turn into two hours. Because what he wants to do is to hike his little leg up and go to a bush and and mark his territory. Then he wants to come over here and smell this mailbox. Then he want to come over here and sniff around on this pole. He will do that the entire mile. It was so bad this week, y'all. I was jerking on him because he kept like trying to go to this bush. I'm like, bro, I got to go to work. Come on. And my neighbor pulled up behind me and I said, he going to call animal control on me because he saw me trying to like give him the business. I know that animals can be stubborn. And what we're told in this passage, this donkey has never been ridden. He can choose not to go. He can go where Jesus doesn't want him to go. But it reads as if the psalm has already told us that when Messiah comes, Creation will get in line. The rocks will cry out. When Messiah dies at 3 p.m. during the day, the sun will bear witness that this is not just an ordinary person. And what's happening in this passage is God is spotlighting. What king had one wife? The church and not many. What king was hand-selected by God the Father to reign forever? 
What king came from Israel, David's son? What king emptied himself and became poor so that we, in his sake, can become rich? What king knew the word, loved the word, breathed the word, cherished the word? What king did not take and take and take your daughters and take your sons and take your money and take your life? What king operated a different kind of way where he says, I come not to take, but to give and to give and to give and to give until there is nothing else left for me to give? That is what God is saying. This is the king who will make all things new. This is the king who will wipe away every tear. This is the king who has the power to restore and reverse all things. And he doesn't sit on an earthly throne. He's at the right hand of the father and he's waiting for his daddy to say, go. Go get your bride. Go make all things new. The king that is spotlighted here is Jesus, which moves us to our last point, and I'll make this one quick. How do we respond? Palm Sunday reminds us how to rightly respond to this king. On one hand, we could spend forever here unpacking how to respond. We obey the king, we love the king, we kiss the king, we serve the king, we trust the king, we draw near to the king, right? We, we could come up with an eternity of ways to respond to this majesty. But I think this passage gives us a window. They're preparing the way for the king. His disciples are putting their cloaks on the king, lifting him up. They're taking their cloaks off and putting it on the ground. And that is to communicate that make way. The, the Lord is coming. The Lord is coming. The Lord is coming. They're announcing to the crowds, the Lord is coming. And for us, a way to respond to the king is to announce to the world that the Lord is coming. The Lord is coming. They're also singing. They're singing to the king. They're singing and chanting Psalm 118. And so a fitting response to the king is worship. That if they are crying out and singing and they're on the other side of the cross, how much more should we leave here hoarse? Singing in tune and out of tune making a noise unto the Lord because he is worthy. But their order is wrong. They're announcing and they're singing, but they've not yet believed. And that's the first order. That's the way the gospel works. We will not announce, we will not follow, we will not obey, we will not sing until belief happens. Where we go and we fall on our faces in faith before him, acknowledging that there is no eternal life found anywhere else. 
acknowledging that the true king of glory showed his love for us. And yet, while we were still sinners, he will die on the cross in our place when we truly believe that our technology, that our vitamins, that artificial intelligence, that our money, that nothing we have can fix this world, but the one who created the world. And we look at the evidence and the evidence leads us right into the arms of the king. And so the way to respond to this king is to not dismiss the mountains of evidence in the Bible. And it's to trust by faith, not by sight, and not by your own doings, that this is the one our hearts were made for. And it's marveling and bowing down. Another way to respond, beloved, is to wait on this king. He's told us he's going away to prepare a place, and it's going to be a long voyage. But he says, I'm coming back. Keep your lamps burning. Be patient with me. I promise you I'm going to wipe every tear away. I promise you I'm going to judge and vindicate my name. I promise you I have a beautiful inheritance for you. The beautiful thing about the Bible is that this is not the last time that we see palm branches. John sees it in Revelation. I saw a great multitude no one could number from every nation and tribe and tongue with palm branches in their hands, crying out, salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb who sits on the throne. Revelation 19 says, and I saw the heavens open up, and I saw one, and he was not on a donkey. He was on a white horse, and he is called faithful and true, and he will judge and make war. From his mouth shall come a sword, that will strike down the nations, and on his thigh is the name King of all kings and Lord of all lords. In other words, what Revelation sees is not this Jesus who was meek and lowly riding in on a donkey. This Jesus that is returning is on a war horse, and he's coming with vengeance and to make all things new. And the nations will bow down. That's our king. That's our king. He is steady. He is stable. He is beautiful. He is powerful. And he is returning. Let us tell that to the enemy. Let us speak that over our tears. Let us mix that with our grief. And our king will stabilize us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Palm Sunday and all that it reminds us of. Thank you, Lord, for your glorious kingdom that we are a part of. And I pray for those who may not know you might today be a day where by your spirit they weigh evidence that leads them to the hands of the Messiah. Father, for those of us who do, help us to worship you, to love you, to trust you, and to even come and sit in your lap by faith and to weep and give you our tears. You are high and exalted.
but you are also near and approachable. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.